0: We don't succeed if we're operating from a basis of fantasy. We have to operate from a basis of fact, and I think the facts are on our side.
1: Welcome to Episode 380 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The Federal Communications Commission has faced growing criticism in recent years about the accuracy of the data it collects and uses to determine where in America people have access to broadband. Broadband. In recent months, the FCC announced that they would establish a new approach to collecting the data and asked for input from stakeholders and interested parties. In addition to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the nonprofit Free Press submitted comments. Today, Derek Turner from Free Press comes on the show to talk about the problems with the old data collection techniques, the FCC's proposal, and his organization's recommendations. Christopher and Derek talk about the Form 477, which is the instrument that Internet service providers use to report where they offer broadband access. They also discuss why the Free Press believes that this form, while not perfect, shouldn't be scrapped, as many other commenters have suggested. Derek and Christopher also get into what they expect in the long term from data that is more granular and where challenges may occur. Now here's Christopher with Derek Turner from the Free Press.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance up in Minneapolis, talking with Derek Turner, the Research Director for Free Press. Welcome to the show, Derek.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
2: Well, I'm, I'm really glad to have you. I feel like you're a person who speaks often through words on the page and so excited to, to talk about some of these issues. Uh, tell us about Free Press.
0: So uh, Free Press is a nonprofit. We were founded in 2003 with the aim of increasing the public's role in media and telecom policy debates that largely happen in Washington, D.C. and around the country with the public not really having a voice. And, you know, we believe that meaningful engagement in our public life, our democratic process, requires that people have equitable access to communications technologies like broadband. And and services, uh, you know, like wireless services and but also a diverse and independent ownership of the media platforms that use those communications uh, uh, technologies to speak to us. And of course, we need journalism that holds leaders accountable and tells people what's actually happening in their community. So media and telecom policy in D.C., I do a lot of uh, work at the FCC and in Congress, uh, mainly around our telecom uh, issues like equitable broadband access, cheaper broadband, faster broadband.
2: You seem to be a numbers person from from what I can tell I mean, you've dug deeper into some of these databases than I think most people have who call themselves researchers on it. So where does that come from?
0: My my, my first life, my first career, I was a medicinal chemist, and I kind of got fed up with the way the the media was working and decided I should go back and maybe apply my skills instead of trying to help people have better lives through chemistry, (laughs) have better lives through better media. (laughs) Uh, and so I, I got a degree in public policy from the University of California, Berkeley, where I specialized in quantitative analysis, tried to apply my scientific background to, to public policy. So, yeah, I do have uh, you know a bit of uh, experience in econometrics and quantitative analysis. And I, you know, I try to apply those skills when I can. And of course, that means I need and want as much quality data as I can get my hands on. But I also think that kind of data and good analysis, whether or not it comes from me or someone else, is really important for policymakers to have. So that's why we at Free Press have been working uh, at the FCC and in Congress on this issue of broadband data since I started working here about 15 years ago.
2: Yeah, I think that you guys do a really good job. And that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is not just because I think you're mostly right, but because I respect the way that you'll tell other people that agree with you that they're wrong about some details, even if they may be right in general. Um, and that 's that 's one of the discussions that that you and I um, have gone back and forth on a little bit because i 've you know i still don 't have a full sense of all the data that 's available um data that I think you 're regularly using and um, as we 're trying to figure that out i 've really appreciated your candid assessments of of <laughs> of what 's out there and how people use it
0: yeah that's that 's a friendly description of some of the back and forth we 've had and i I really appreciate that but no I, I think I, I I love all the folks in the Avacy community and I think that you know, we don't necessarily need to speak with one voice, but I think when we all have a common understanding of the information that's out there, and, and we're looking at it fairly and with clear eyes, I think our work is much more effective against those out there who, who oppose some of the same goals that we have, and who aren't, you know, shy about hire, hiring, you know, uh, for-profit economists that you know are a little bit sketchy, and, and they're, they're <laughs> certainly willing to spend the data in their favor. So, you know, I think it helps us if, if we all have access to good data and, you know, have a clear understanding of, of what that is. So,
2: Well, in the discussion about good data, I think you might be, and, and this is not unusual for Free Press, which is very happy to take a contrary position in ways that um, put it outside of norms, perhaps. Um, you might be the only person willing to defend Form 477 in an era in which, Everyone but everyone is talking about how terrible our mapping is, and so I and, I and I think your position makes perfect sense. So I want to unpack it.
0: Sure, yeah, I I, I do recognize that from the outside, our position does look a little uh, incongruous to where a lot of the criticisms are. But I, you know, I think as we get we get into this a little bit, you'll sense that I have a little bit of uh, sort of fatherly pride or personal pride in in the data collection uh, efforts at the FCC in that they used to be really 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 bad and the criticisms were leveling now <laughs> compared to where it was is just it, it shows how far we've come and, and so I you know I think that I, I, I sort of come from a position of we've made so much improvements to what the commission is doing they certainly can do a lot more but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and let's realize how you know lucky but how much hard work by a lot of people other than me you and other folks way back when had to do had to go into getting us to where we are now and it doesn't mean the job's over but it does mean we should recognize you know the good things about the FCC's data that are worth preserving
2: so let me see if i can describe this in in a way and i welcome your correcting me, but I think the way most people think of it, Form 477 is a form that uh, internet service providers have to fill out twice a year in which they submit, among other things, uh, information about their service. And it's done um, at the block level, which is to say a census block. Um, And it involves both uh, information about how many subscriptions they have at different levels, as well as what kind of service that they could offer in a reasonable period of time uh, to someone to at least one premise within that block.
0: That is it. That is that is Form Four Seven Seven as it existed basically a few months ago. Now they're getting making some changes to it, which we can go into. But that, that basically correct. The idea behind this data collection effort, which began in nineteen ninety nine, long time ago, two decades ago, was essentially we were at the dawn of the broadband era, and the Commission had a statutory duty under the then. 1996 amendments to the Communications Act to promote competition and to promote the deployment of advanced, what they call advanced telecommunications capability, or in other words, broadband. And so the commission began collecting data from providers in 1999, but they used a really bizarre way of going about this. They basically said, hey, providers, tell us if you have at least one subscriber in a zip code. And if they did, (laughs) then the FCC counted that zip code as covered. And so what that ended up doing, it ended up you know, At a time when everyone knows their only viable choices really for broadband would be their local phone provider or their local cable company, the res- FCC was telling everyone, no, 99 percent of the population is covered, and their, their average number of available providers is eight. And, and <laughs> so just a wildly overstated methodology here. And then on the subscription side, they only collected data on the number of subscribers at the state level. So you could you know you could see changes at the state level in somewhere like Wyoming or DC they're going up they're going down but you don't really have any idea of, of where that was or or you know any kind of granularity of that so that that's how they started out and and over the years uh, particularly in 2008 with a lot of input from the public interest community they'd made a major expansion to that to go down on the deployment to the uh, census block level actually that came later but to go away from the zip code methodology, to go down to the census track level for subscribership. The Congress got involved in 2009 around the Stimulus Act, told the uh, Commerce Department to go and collect better data, and they decided that the census block level was where this data would reside. And, you know, I think that made a lot of sense at the time. We had at the time had been advocating, hey, ISPs know every single address where they offer service. Why can't we just get access to an address-level database? And they, they fought us tooth and nail on that and said, you know, okay, well, we'll go up to the block level. And a, a census block level can have anywhere between one person, but on average it's about, you know, uh, 50 to 80, almost up to 100 in some really dense areas of, of folks living in a block. And that that, it, that ended up working for what we were trying to get at there. We felt that that was a really good approximation of deployment and that it came with the bonus of now we can finally use the census demographic information to figure out, well, wait a second, carriers, where are they deploying? Are they deploying to richer areas? Are they deploying to areas that, that don't have uh, diverse populations? We were able to, to know the income of those areas. We were able to do all kind of complicated analysis that we just simply weren't before. And so, so that was quite welcome. But as we've seen, Form 477, we initially thought served multiple purposes. We did, it does serve multiple purposes. It's, it's to help the FCC know where broadband is and isn't, but it's also to talk about competition and analyze competition. But it turns out in very, very rural areas, census blocks can be gigantic, and you will have a situation in some areas where a block is considered covered, even though only a tiny corner of that block is covered and maybe most of the homes that are on the other side of that, that block in a rural area aren't. And so that is where the FCC has come under a lot of heat lately, that they're overstating the level of deployment, particularly in rural America, and that's leading to inefficient targeting of their USF subsidies.
2: And that has led many people to just saying "Form four seven seven doesn't work, so you've gone through some of the history but so let's let's talk about this um you know first of all, almost everyone talks about the deployment data, so tell me a little bit more about the subscribership data that that you've used in several of your filings recently
0: sure so when the commission first adopted Form 477, it was both to look at where broadband is deployed, but it's also to look at where it's adopted because if you build it and they don't come, that indicates maybe you've got a competition problem or that maybe you've got an education problem, whatever. We don't know. So they collected data on subscribership at the state level. That was way too uh, high level. So they went down to the census tract level, which is you know a few hundred to maybe low thousand uh, group of people, area size. And 2008, that's where ISP started reporting their number of subscribers at the census tract level, but also what type of technology they use, what's the speed of that technology, download, upload. And that was actually something we fought very hard for because in the original zip code methodology, for example, I used to live uh, in in northern Virginia, and my uh, zip code showed up as having three cable providers. And it's just because Cox would serve one part of, of of the area I lived in, the zip code I lived in, RCN was in another part, and then Com- Comcast was in another part. Obviously, cable providers don't compete with each other. So by taking it down to the census tract level, you were able to see, wait a second, here are the actual number of subscribers to cables, the cable provider. Here are the actual number of subscribers to DSL provider. And this is the level of competition we have. It's a duopoly. And now we can start to correlate that with other data that we want the commission to gather, like price, quality of the service, things like that. Uh, and so that, that was the impetus behind collecting subscribership data. Now, the commission's done nothing with it since then. It, it's a really fa- vastly untapped resource for the public because the commission not only doesn't analyze the data itself, they don't release the full data to the public on subscribership data the same way they do on deployment data. So, yes, uh, in our recent comment you're alluding to, uh, this data, even even though they don't release much of it, it can, it can uh, glean uh, data points such as this. So, for example, satellite broadband, you know, Technically, the entire United States is covered by satellite broadband. But in all the areas I've ever lived in, I've never gotten a flyer from HughesNet saying, "Hey, would, <laughs> would you like to sign up?" Even though I get all kind of mailers all the time from my my cable and DSL companies. So, uh, but it turns out only you know about 1.7 percent of all the subs- fixed subscriptions in the United States are, are to satellite, and it's the same way with 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 uh, fixed wireless. So,
2: well, let's start let's stick with satellite for a second just to to unpack that. And so. I mean, one of the things that your comments talked about is that the satellite companies know that they don't compete everywhere, right? They could serve anywhere, but it would be like none of my neighbors are going to sign up for satellite unless it's a horrible mistake that they've made, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's just no way that a, a rational consumer would willingly choose a more expensive service that has severe limitations on it in terms of data caps and latency when there are other options out there available to them. And the satellite companies know that, which is, again, why they don't market to most of the United States.
2: But what, what really I find amazing is is it shows what a market rejection that is because you have a lot of people living in rural areas in which they cannot get anything else, and they've decided it would be better to have nothing. And that might be because of cost pressure or it might just be because of the quality of the service, that they have rejected you know that service that is available and and frankly as bad as it's been i mean the satellite today is is way better than it used to be it it still has limitations but it's not 3 megabits anymore in most cases
0: yeah it's it's definitely improved they've launched some new satellites that that's made it for those that do have the ability to pay the the quite exorbitant prices and who absolutely need it and who can't fall back on mobile uh which is what a lot of folks have done uh when there's nothing else available it's you know, it's a it's a service of last resort for those people. And it's gotten thank God it's gotten better, but it's not certainly it's not comparable to the any of the other wireline and fixed services that are out there. So it, it and again, this is a problem at the FCC with their analysis, because if you just look at their patting themselves on the back, of their reports, they'll say, oh, you know, the average U.S. resident has maybe three or more fixed options available to them. And they're counting satellite in that when that's not actually the case. It's not actually available. It may be deployed, but it's not available.
2: So let's talk briefly about fixed wireless, and what are the numbers around fixed wireless regarding how much of a claim there is to service versus the uh, amount of subscribers?
0: Yeah, I I live where where I'm at now in Southern California. I show up in the FCC's data as having a a couple of fixed wireless options available to me, but I've gone to their websites, and it's not clear that they're actually marketing their services to me. But yeah, again, they cover about, according to the FCC's data, about 37% of the U.S. population, which is a pretty substantial size, but they only... Account for about one percent of all the FCC's reported fixed lines. So again, there, there it's it's it is a solution for some people, but it appears that it's not actually a viable product for for a lot of folks, and that can be for different reasons. Maybe they don't know about it, uh, but it probably it's more likely that where it is available, it's again it's kind of this sort of almost last resort service to to where people who don't have many other options are, are willing to go. And it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, you know, there are some very innovative fixed wireless projects in urban areas where it's not a last resort service. They're actually offering better, at least better priced service and maybe without the data caps compared to their DSL provider or their cable provider. Uh, but again, those, those are few and far between compared to what most uh, the average uh, households in the U.S. actually can go out and purchase.
2: I think it's worth noting, like you said, you know, monkey brains, uh, Common, um, Netblazer are the three wireless ISPs. I think Starry, a number of people quite like them. And so uh, there's those, your dad is also, I would expect, um, it's 18 months old for that. And so I think fixed wireless has come a long way over those 18 months. But even so, I mean, maybe that's, maybe it's tripled like that would be an incredible (laughs) jump and it would still only be 3%.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. The most recent data on subscribership from the FCC is uh, the middle of 2017. So we're two years behind there now. And uh, yes, I, I would certainly think that fixed wireless has made a jump then. Certainly a lot of the ISPs you just mentioned are putting out faster and faster speeds. And they're, you know, I've seen more coverage of them in the media. I think awareness of of them as options, particularly Starry, has had a big push in the media from where they're operating, but again, I I would like to look into it to where where I live. Certainly, I, uh, I I don't want to give my business to the to the cable monopolist if I don't have to, but it's just not a viable economic alternative compared to even the duopoly providers that I have available to me.
2: So as we as we wrap up talking about Form four seven seven, I think there's there's two points. One is. You, you went into this in great depth in, in an email chain um, regarding the data from Microsoft. And people, including myself, have said incorrectly that the Microsoft data shows that the Form 477 data is horribly wrong. And and I you've convinced me that you're right. So tell me how I'm wrong.
0: Uh, uh, I don't do this with any glee, but I, I do think uh, <laughs> it's, you know, look, the, the folks at Microsoft are – trying to get the FCC to pay attention to a number of policy issues. And one of those is the need for better data on where rural deployment is actually happening. And to do that, they have put forth some data that they use that basically is is their statistical analysis of people doing Windows updates in the middle of the night. So they're able to actually – because Windows computers are everywhere – have a good sense of the quality, the actual deliverable quality of, of people's broadband connections. And, and basically what they're coming up with is a number that shows that about half the country is not using home internet at the speeds the FCC considers to be broadband. So 25 megabits per second downstream, three megabits per second upstream. When you hear that number and then you compare that number to what the FCC says is available to people the 93% of the country has that level of broadband. So you hear 50% is it 93%. Well, the difference there is Microsoft is measuring what people actually subscribe to, and some people, for some reasons, a a variety of reasons, are willingly choosing a slower tier than 25.3 in areas where 25.3 is, in fact, available. And if you look at some of Microsoft's subsequent filings, they kind of clean this up a little bit in their language and say that their data actually does match the FCC subscribership data. So I I think they're playing a little bit of a game of, of, of trying to, stoke a lot of upset politicians fear and people that that this money's going out the door where it shouldn't be and they're using that number which is a very interesting number i don't want to downplay that number that number is interesting for a number of reasons for one it tells me that there are a lot of people who could potentially buy what the fcc considers broadband but they're not now why are they not are they not because it's too expensive are they not because it's they're not interested in it Uh, Are they not because they're not being marketed to because they live in a neighborhood where carriers don't deem those customers as valuable? That's a really interesting policy question to me uh, that I think the Microsoft data can help elucidate uh, and, and make clear. So.
2: There's like there's a whole slow food movement, but I don't think there's really a universe of people who are thinking I really like my transactions on the internet to take longer than they otherwise would. So presumably there is a a reason there oh, that sure. they are not taking those higher I speeds. I mean, for
0: example, my mother-in-law lives right outside of New York City in an area that's covered by by Fios, Verizon Fios, it's covered by Optimum uh Cablevision's uh network and they have gigabit essentially cable uh, available to her. They have Gigabit fiber available to her, but because she was on an old modem that was DOCSIS 2 modem, she wasn't showing up in Microsoft's test <laughs> as, as as having that. And then I, you know, went there one day and said, "Hey, why don't you just call them up and say, I recognize you guys have faster speeds available. Can you, you know, can you send me a new modem and upgrade my plan?" And they did without any cost to her. And so now she shows up in the data as covered. So there's issues like that. People that could afford it just didn't know about it. Or uh, there's people that are, could, could be on plans that they've been in, been on forever and just haven't upgraded. To me, the more interesting thing is people who are looking at the tiers of prices and saying, you know what, I am going to choose a 20 megabit per second or a 15 megabit per second plan. And Again, that those are going away as, as, as uh, progress marches on. But why are they choosing that? Is it is it price or is it just because they don't actually need the, the faster speeds? I think that's a really interesting question that that the FCC hasn't really decided to tackle because anything that relates to competition or looking at the market where people actually have broadband, it, it's decided that it's not an, uh, an issue of importance to them, unfortunately.
2: One of the things I want to make sure we highlight is that this truth, which which you're right about, it, it's one of those weird things in which everything can be true. <laughs> I like think Form 477 is flawed, and yet there, you can pull interesting, good, accurate data from it. That matches up with the fact that I would say that we do need to find ways of improving access. But also from my perspective, I have a sense that there are a lot of people in rural areas that are paying for often Frontier or Windstream or someone for a 15 or 20 megabit DSL connection. And they're only getting a few megabits per second. But one of the things that I've found in in in, in talking with you about is that it seems like There's a lot of those people, but still, they're not a large percentage of the American people.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you actually raised a really good point there because we kind of had the FCC sniffing on this trail for a little bit, and now they've sort of gone away from it. And Sasha Meinrath and your research and other people have actually highlighted that cable used to be – they used to have an issue as a shared network where they were advertising a certain threshold of speeds, and they weren't able to deliver it. They've gotten a lot better with with their technology doing node splits, and obviously DOCSIS 3 helps – opening up the, the megahertz size of the plant they're able to access. But DSL does have this inherent distance limitation, and they're a lot more susceptible to congestion when people are oversubscribing their networks. It's not as easy for them to go in and do a node split, for example, like a cable company has. DSL you know, about, only has about a third of the fixed line for subscriptions uh, today so maybe that's because it's a diminishing platform. It's not getting a lot of attention. But, yeah, there, there, are, there is a strong evidence that, that a significant portion of DSL customers are not getting what they pay for. So they may show up in the Microsoft data as not having that available to them when maybe they are buying that, that level of service and they're not actually receiving it. So that's, again, an issue that I would hope that the FCC's data could help us you know, identify as one to look further into. Unfortunately, all the debate today is about rural and where we're spending the money. And that's important, but it's not the entire piece. There are rural folks that do have connections, and they're just a poor quality. And I'd like to help them as much as I'd like to help the folks who have nothing available to them whatsoever.
2: The FCC is about to improve the data collection. I think in their proposed rulemaking, they're suggesting that the the new data collection, which will involve these polygons, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this with you today, although we may come back when we get a better sense of what they're actually going to do, they have a sense that I think that they want to sunset the Form 477. And you, um, I, I think I read all the comments in that docket, and you were the only one who really raised a concern with doing that.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really unfortunate because we aren't the only folks who have actually made use of fully accessible public data at the block level. Uh, A number of other academics have used it. Uh, Certainly, it comes up in regulatory merger proceedings and things like that where industry is all too happy to have their paid economists go in and use the data. But, yeah, so the commission has, has said, hey, we've got a new system here where providers will submit to us detailed polygon maps, and we'll use that to build a mapping database here that people can look at and decide whether or not broadband's available at a very granular level in their area. Well, great. Maps are useful for some folks. For researchers like me who want to do complicated analysis and, and demographic analysis, I need actual numbers. I need, I need to work with something that can go into a database. And so what we told the FCC is, hey, basically today, The way the submission works, like providers, the ISPs you work with, I doubt they know what census blocks they operate in in the normal course of their business. (laughs) So what they do is the FCC is given instructions on how to actually take a shapefile, a map that you produce as an ISP because you know where your stuff is, and then transform that shapefile map into a list of census blocks using some open source software. What we told the FCC is, hey, if people are still just handing over maps to you instead of them doing the conversion to census blocks, can you do that? And continue to release this database-friendly information because that is incredibly valuable to look at what's changing over time and, and to do all the kind of you know demographic analysis that, that we like to do. That the states themselves have used this, and for California where I live, has used, used this information to do a lot of demographic analysis on deployment. So please keep doing that. In addition to gathering more granular information, because I, again, I I can take a map of a, a particular census block that's partially covered. And code that as a, as a partially covered block. I can do things in a database with it that, that are still useful. Uh, and so that way everybody wins. You get your nice pretty maps that are very granular and detailed. And researchers like myself get access to the to data we need to track broadband deployment competition in, in this country.
2: But also the subscribership information. I mean, that seems like it's just been forgotten in this discussion.
0: And it wasn't clear to me, and I, I haven't been able to nail it down. I don't think that the FCC is proposing to get rid of the subscribership information. If they are, they're doing that in a very sneaky way because they, they did not make it sound as if that's what they were up to. That would be a grave mistake because it's it's been 10 years now, but we did have this thing called the National Broadband Plan. A lot of folks have forgot about it, but it, uh, it costs a lot of money to produce a lot of good Folks worked on it, and it produced a a very big and detailed report. It had a number of recommendations in it. But in that list of recommendations were, hey, FCC, take this subscribership data you have and analyze it better for competition. And not only that, let outside researchers come and look at it. Okay, maybe it's confidential to, to know exactly how many subscribers a given carrier has at a very detailed level. But researchers access confidential data at FCC all the time. So the National Broadband Plan team said, hey, let outside researchers access it. The commission dropped the ball on that totally. The the national broadband team said, hey, go collect granular pricing information because supply and demand, one of the key variables in supply and demand, which is what we're kind of getting at with Form 477 deployment and subscribership, supply and demand, is price. You need to know how price impacts uh, both the willingness to deploy and also the willingness for people to adopt. They've been told by the national broadband plan team, go collect price. They've even themselves have sort of temporarily recommended that, Hey, we will – go collect pricing data, but at, and for some reason in 2013 all that was dropped and, and it's kind of in the rearview mirror now and we've forgotten that that's actually one of the major points of you going to the trouble of collecting this level of data is so we can actually use it to measure competition and, and so if that's going away, I think I'll have to go in my closet and get my pitchfork out because uh, <laughs> that, that is unacceptable.
2: as you're saying that, I'm just thinking well, probably it is an honest error, but at the same time with these With the agencies we're seeing under the Trump administration, you have to be concerned that um it may be something that um just ends up not um you know being perhaps not even intentionally but ends up being a way to drop um key data that's available to the public right now. In my mind, the maps will be superior because from them we can derive the census blocks. And I agree with you, the FCC should be doing that. Um, but it will also give us this granular information in ways that we will be able to see, you know, at the which houses and which businesses and, and that sort of a thing are, are included. So to me, that seems like an improvement. I've had some pushback from people saying that I'm insufficiently concerned about the addresses in my mind, I don't know what I do with a whole bunch of addresses. I know what I can do with maps. I feel like I can turn that into addresses to some extent. So as a researcher, you know, is the FCC more or less getting this right with the polygons and then assuming that they would take your suggestion to turn that into the census blocks as well?
0: I think so. In most of the country, particularly, you know, 80% of the country is, is in an urban area. In most of the country, you're not going to have the same issue of one part of a very small geography is covered and another is not. That's largely a a rural issue. And, you know, so, yeah, they're going to ask for these very detailed polygons. When providers are going to turn over these so-called polygons, they are going to be very detailed maps of where broadband is and isn't. It'll be useful on the other side of that if the FCC goes forward with what they're enormously called the fabric part of this, which is essentially a separate detailed map of every single building structure, you know, an apartment building, a business, and deep knowledge of that. They're going to layer those two over one another. And so that essentially mimics what would be an address level uh, specific uh, deployment database. You know, in the past, we've asked the FCC to collect address level information. We've gotten a lot of pushback from the carriers as to why that's not as good as an option, as we might think it is, they, they, they say, well, you know, we don't actually keep our records the same way, address by address. We do GIS. We use billing addresses sometimes if, if we use addresses mm-hmm. at all. So I, I don't know the validity of, of those arguments. I think the carriers historically are just unwilling to give up any information unless forced to. So the fact that they're willing to hand, hand over these polygons is, is, is fine. And, and that with the fabric information should give us an approximation of address by address level. I just hope at the end of the day that they understand and embrace the utility of having database-level information and so that either they themselves do these conversions to, to, to very granular census block-level uh, database uh, information, or if they give it to us, they give us some ability to have uh, you know, that analysis done quickly because I, I've played around with some of the open-source software on the mobile side, Uh, The FCC doesn't produce the data in the same way they do on fixed. And it's a bit of a a hairy process to convert all these thousands of shape files into into census uh, block information. So the FCC is a big, powerful government agency. They should be doing that. But I do think that at the end of the day, what the FCC has proposed will hopefully solve most of this overstated deployment issue. And then once that's solved, I, I guess I'm a little naive here, we can get on to talking about Solving the competition problems, okay? <laughs> We've finally solved, you know, knowing where broadband is and isn't. We're paying to get it into those areas where it isn't. Now can we also focus a little bit on those who do have broadband but only maybe have one provider available to them who's charging them a ridiculous amount of money for it or they're potentially not delivering on the, on the service speeds that the customers are paying for or they have data caps that they're using anti-competitively. Those are the kinds of things I think the SEC has the data on. To start enabling that kind of uh, scrutiny. And just historically, they've just been reluctant to do that.
2: Yes. Well, I'm, I'm relieved to hear that because that's what I thought. <laughs> nice uh, confirmation bias for me. I'm not going to question you further on it. <laughs> <Not> great. Um, <laughs> but also just because we're, we're running out of time. So I, Derek, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate um, the, the work that you've done and that you're um, willing to correct uh, allies and, uh, <laughs> and make sure that we're all moving in the right direction of, of not just making a good rhetorical argument, but one that actually is moving us toward uh, having the data we need and, and using it correctly
0: hey I do it with love and I'm also happy to be on the receiving end of correction as well because again we don't we don't succeed if we're, if we're operating from a basis of, of, of fantasy we have to operate from a basis of fact and I think the facts are on our side
2: you know that actually reminds me the last thing I wanted to note um, in my office we were working on um, the FCC data on Pennsylvania when the new data set had come out that had barrier as a company that claimed to serve all of Pennsylvania. And, and we were having this like moment of, of like argument internally when it happened um, because we were like, well, this is obviously not true. <laughs> like, it's just not even physically possible. And so we're trying to figure out how to rejigger the map. So I'm really glad that someone took the time to actually tell the FCC rather than just arguing about it internally and, and passing it off as well. That's what you get today.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was the FCC, should, at least this FCC chairman, should have a little bit of shame. Uh, unfortunately, he he was more than willing. And his staff, I don't know if they were afraid of him or what, but the, obviously, as you mentioned, when that data came in, it was clearly a red flag that this, this was way overstated. All of a sudden, you know, the trajectory of data lines usually go up and to the right at the same slope. Well, this one just kinked right up, and, you know, something was wrong. And it was immediately obvious to you, it was immediately obvious to me. We wrote a letter to the FCC about it and and said, hey, maybe you shouldn't be patting yourself on the back here because it's in large part based on this erroneous data filing that you should have caught. And that's a big issue. The commission is quality control of their data. And they said, OK, we're going to look into it. Turns out barriers probably still overstating in their corrected data where they were. And in the most recent data set, they're not even in there at all. So they went from being nothing to deploying huge amounts of broadband both fiber and fixed wireless to then to slightly less, and now they're gone from the database. So clearly that identifies uh, an area that of quality control the FCC needs to work on that makes folks like me who are out there defending Forms 477 look a little ridiculous because if they can't assure the quality of their data, then how can anyone rely on it? But I, I think at the end of the day, hopefully in the future, as FCC leadership changes, maybe they will emphasize the need not only to collect the right data, but to make sure that what's being handed over is, is not terrible.
2: If they're not gonna if they're not gonna bother getting it right, they could do it more quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why do we have to wait two years for something that's exactly just wrong? and
0: that was one of the things that came up in the recent proceeding is the FCC actually said, Hey, what should we do about chronic filers of bad data? And we said, Hey, maybe chronic you know, one mistake is is fine, you know, ask for some help. Two mistakes, well, what's going on there? Three, four, five. Well, maybe these people are being incentivized to be lazy if there's no consequences. You know, if you don't do your homework once, maybe your teacher will be nice. But if you repeatedly stop, then maybe she'll give you a a, a failing grade. But unfortunately, I don't know if you've seen the record, almost no one supports the idea of of penalizing chronically bad filers. And I think that's really unfortunate because what's the incentive to actually take the time to get this right if there's no consequences for just handing over bogus data?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm with you on that. And thank you again. Uh, It's been a wonderful conversation.
0: Sure. Thanks for having me.
1: That was Christopher with Free Press Research Director Derek Turner. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, License to Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 380 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.